This is a podcast of First Presbyterian Church in Trenton, Michigan, a gospel-centered community seeking to glorify God by making, maturing, and multiplying disciples. For more information, check out fpchurch.com. Good morning. i got to tell you, this weekend has been a crazy up-and-down weekend. Our Trenton football team went to the playoffs, and we were hoping for a win, and we lost to my alma mater, Riverview. So that was a little heartbreaking for me. But then uh, this weekend, I had the opportunity to go see my son play uh, his team, and they won the championship. So I got the very low of lows and the very high of highs. And uh, knowing that I would have a busy weekend, I did ask a dear friend to come and preach this week for us. Jerry, I've known just a, for a, a, a few well, I guess a year and a half, right, is about the right time. Jerry and his wife came um, on a what they call a vision tour. They were coming uh, to look at Michigan to plant a church, and it is something that they had been praying about, and a group that I'm affiliated with invited me to be part of that, to show Jerry Downriver, and I was showing him various parts of Downriver, and uh, they fell in love with Dearborn, which I guess we could say is Downriver. I don't, know, I don't know if Dearborn would like us to say that, but uh, we'll say it. We'll say it is. And so uh, Jerry is, let me give you a little bit of background about Jerry. Uh, Jerry uh, is uh, married to Catherine. Uh, his, he is the father for Virginia, Alice, and their son, Jerry. He is a graduate of Virginia Tech, um, and he also graduated from Reformed Theological Seminary, where I went. Uh, Jerry and Catherine moved to Dearborn in the summer of 2002, or I'm sorry, 2022, to plant Grace Presbyterian Church in connection with what is called the Detroit Project. Uh, before moving to Detroit, Jerry and Catherine served for 13 years in college ministry for crew in Virginia Tech and Madison, James Madison University. As a result, they have a passion for ministry to college students and uh, young adults, and they continue to do much very similar work in their church planning efforts through the University of Michigan-Dearborn and Henry Ford College. And so we're just excited to have Jerry with us, and so I'm excited to hear what the Lord has laid on his heart. I am going to do the readings. Uh, so we have an Old Testament and New Testament reading. They are marked specifically uh, around this idea of, of the Reformation, this being Reformation Sunday. We thought this was a good opportunity to kind of focus in on what was the Reformation all about. So I'm going to ask you to turn your Bibles to Exodus chapter 20, Exodus chapter 20, which is that, that passage of Scripture which gives us the law of God. Exodus chapter 20, this is God speaking through Moses, and we'll begin at verse 1. And God spoke all these things, saying, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is on the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and the fourth generation of those who hate me but showing steadfast love to the thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not take the name of the Lord, your God, in vain. For the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. 
Six days you shall labor and do your work, but on the seventh day is the Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do anything, any work. You or your son or your daughter, your male servant or your female servant, your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates. For the six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea and all that is in them, and he rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Honor your father and your mother, that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or, may, or his male servant or his female servant, his ox or his donkey, or anything that is your neighbor's. Now when all the people saw the thundering and the flashing of lightning and the sound of the trumpet and the mountain smoking, the people were afraid and trembled, and they stood afar off. And said to Moses, You speak to us, and we will listen, but do not let God speak to us, lest we die. Moses said to the people, Do not fear, for God has come to test you, that the fear of him may be before you, and that you may not sin. The people stood afar off while Moses drew near into the thick darkness where God was. Now turn to the New Testament reading, which comes from the book of Colossians. Colossians chapter 3, verses 1 through 11. Colossians chapter 3, beginning of verse 1. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on the things that are above and not the things that are on the earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. Sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these things, the wrath of God is coming. And these things you too once walked when you were living in them. But now you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self in its practices. And have put on the new self, which is being renewed in the knowledge after the image of its creator. Here there is not neither Greek nor Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Slythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come before you, and Lord, we recognize that this is your house, that we as your people sit under your word, and we ask, Lord, that you would do your work in us. O Holy Spirit, come and minister to us. Take your word and apply it to our hearts. Soften our hearts, open our minds, unblind our eyes, unblock our ears so that we may hear you. Our greatest prayer is that we would be changed more and more into the image of Christ, that the things of this world would grow dim to us, but the things of heaven and Christ would take our focus that we would be kingdom-minded people. God, we know that this work 
is a work you must do, for we cannot save ourselves. We're thankful for the gift of Jesus who came and took on human flesh, who lived and walked amongst us, who bled and died on a cross we deserved in our place. And proving that there was victory in Christ, he was resurrected on the third day in the empty tomb. Seeing more than 500 who saw the resurrected Christ, we celebrate the truth today, this Lord's Day, of the power of Christ. Our healer, our savior, our friend. And Lord, we are thankful for the gift of Jesus. Lord, our hearts break for those in our community that struggle. We pray specifically this morning, we pray for Kathy. We pray, Lord, as she is preparing to have the viewing for her son, Keith. We pray for her and Mike. We pray, God, for all those who will gather. We pray that you would surround them with your love and your care. We pray, Lord, for your just providing peace. And, Lord, we know that there is hope, hope in Christ. A hope, Lord, that we all can have in the finished work of Jesus. Lord, I pray for Jerry as he comes and preaches. We thank you, Lord, for sending yet another person to preach the gospel, the good news of Jesus, to this area. We pray for his work there planting a church in Dearborn. We pray that you would strengthen him and Catherine and their family, uphold them. We pray now, Lord, as he brings the word to us, that you would fill his mouth with your words, and that, Lord, you would empower him to speak with authority, not of his own, the very word of God, and that we, your people, would hear it and be changed. We pray this now in Jesus' name, and God's people said. Well, good morning, everyone. It is a privilege to be here with you all this morning. Uh, Again, my name is Jerry Riando. Aaron, thank you so much for having me come and preach this morning. Just briefly, a little bit about my family. Aaron shared a little bit. Uh, we moved here about a year and a half ago. My wife, Catherine, and I have been married for just over 10 years. We celebrated our 10-year anniversary this summer, and we have a 7, 5, and 3-year-old. Uh, they'll be here at the second service, and so I'd recommend you stick around and meet them. They're far more pleasant than I am to meet. Uh, you'd, you'd really enjoy them. We moved here about a year and a half ago, and we've been getting to know the city of Dearborn. In fact, I'm assuming most of you know Dearborn far better than I do at this point. You all aren't too far away from there. Uh, But we have really been enjoying getting to the city. A few things we've learned that that we, some of which we knew before we arrived, some that we didn't, is the first thing is, of course, Dearborn is uh, well known for being the largest concentration of Arab men and women in in North America. About half the population is, is probably Arab. Uh, and of course, you know that it's the headquarters of Ford. And so there's many, many young professionals who live in the city, engineers and others who, who call it their home or at least commute in to work. But something you may not know about Dearborn is it's a college town. There are 25,000 college students who attend school at either the University of Michigan at Dearborn or right next door, Henry Ford College, and we've been enjoying ministering there. Uh, one of the reasons we really felt that Dearborn would be a great place to come plant a church is there is a lot of good things going on in this town. Dearborn is the fastest growing city in the state of Michigan. It's also one of the youngest cities in Michigan, with 40% of the population is under the age of 24, so there's reason to believe it's going to keep growing. But in spite of a lot of great things going on, there's some challenging things. As I've talked to 
Christian leaders in the city, pastors of other good gospel-preaching churches or, or leaders of ministries, I've asked the question, how many Christians do you believe are worshiping in a church where the gospel was proclaimed on Sunday morning? Of any stripe, not just good Presbyterian churches, but any church where the gospel is proclaimed, the number that I hear from them is usually something less than 700 people in a city of about 130,000 people. Which means, and even if that number is not right, even if it's two or three times that large, it means that right now the gospel is very avoidable in Dearborn. That you could probably live your whole life in our neighborhoods or work in our, our industry or go to school in our colleges and never encounter the saving message of Jesus Christ. And we're dreaming of a day where in cooperation with all these other wonderful churches in and around Dearborn, where the gospel would become unavoidable. Where you couldn't call Dearborn your home or your place of employment and not encounter Jesus. So that's what we're dreaming toward. Right now we're at a stage in church planning. We're gathering weekly in my home for Bible study and discussion and once a month, we're having a worship service in Dearborn, a Sunday morning worship service, and our next one is November 19th. So if you know anyone in the Dearborn area who should be a part of that, could you let me know? I need to meet more people in the city in order to, to meet as many people as we need in order to make this church happen. So you can be praying for us, and we're, we're really excited about the ways that you all have been uh, encouraging us, especially Pastor Aaron. So turning now to the passage in Colossians chapter 3, I think you, you probably noticed as you were looking at the passage, that the passage is divided into two, two sections, verses 1 through 4 and verses 5 through 11. Verses 1 through 4 is sort of a cause, and verses 5 through 11 is, is an effect. Verse 1 through 4 causes what Paul is talking about in verses 5 through 11. We see this grammatically. Verse 1 begins with a causal statement. It says, if, then. Now, this is not a uh, if statement that's conditional. Like, if you study hard, you'll get good grades. It's more of an if statement. As Aaron mentioned, I, I did college ministry for a number of years, and sometimes I'd hear a young man in my ministry say to another young man, if you're, you were a man, then you would, and there would usually be some statement that would follow that would be irresponsible and dangerous. If you're a man, then you'll do this action, right? That that young man is not doubting whether the guy he's talking to is really a man, but he's saying, because you're a man, I'm telling you certain behavior should follow. In fact, every other translation, almost every other translation besides the ESV, translates this, since then, since then you have been raised with Christ. And verses 5 through 11 begins with a therefore statement. You'll see it there, therefore, put to death what is earthly in you. Sexual immorality impurity, passions, evil desires, covetousness, anger, wrath, malice, and slander. And so the, the, the truths about who we are as Christians in verse 1 through 4, the fact that we have been raised with Christ, that your life is hidden with Christ, that your life is Christ, and that when Christ appears, you will appear with him in glory, is, comes before and is the cause of, verses 5 through 11, this, this way that we are therefore to live. And what Paul is doing here is following a pattern that we see constantly throughout Scripture. He's placing the indicative before the imperative. An indicative statement is a statement that tells you who you are, what is true about you, before the imperative statement, how therefore you are to live. And it proceeds, in, it's before it in the sense that it comes before it in the text, Right? But it also is before it logically. The imperative flows out of is the, is the response to, the logical response to 
the indicative, what is true of you. We see this constantly throughout Scripture. I understand you all have been walking through the book of Hebrews and have come to Hebrews 3 where Moses, the great prophet of the Old Testament, is compared to Jesus and Jesus' prophetic office. And Moses is, of course, associated with the most famous set of commandments in all of Scripture, maybe in all of religion. And we just read them, and did you notice that Moses here, as he's quoting God, follows this same pattern of putting the indicative, who you are, before the imperative. Exodus chapter 20, verses 1 through 2, the very beginning of the Ten Commandments says, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. And then proceeds from that, proceeds from that, uh, the Ten Commandments, how therefore you are to live, right? Could the Israelites in the Old Testament by following the Ten Commandments, cause God to be their God and cause themselves to be his people? Or could they cause themselves to become freed from Egypt? No, of course not. Those events had already occurred. God had already declared himself to be their God. He had already rescued them and saved them from slavery in Egypt. There is no way that following those commandments could cause that relationship or that freedom to occur. They are simply the logical response that God is telling them, this is how you should live. And we see this constantly in Colossians 3, in Exodus chapter 20, over and over. Almost everywhere we see God tell us how we should live, first he tells us who we are. This is a very, very difficult pattern for us to internalize and to believe. The reason I believe that is the case is because every other relationship in our life operates the exact opposite way. In every other relationship, except maybe, maybe for the relationship with our parents, and even in that case, it's not always true, we are accepted or rejected based on how we perform. If there's any students in the room right now, how do you, how do you become acceptable, accepted and acceptable in your schools by your teachers? Well, you do it by studying hard and performing well. You don't study hard and perform well in your school and do everything that's asked of you because you're so grateful that you've already received an A+. Right? It goes the other way around. You, you get the A because you do what is required of you and you do it well. The same with applying for college or job applications or dating. Right? Uh, all of us who've ever been turned down on a date know that dating is not by grace alone, right? And we have to prove ourselves in one sense to the person we're asking out a date in order for them to say yes, or at least to say yes to the second date. But to apply our experience of every other relationship we're in to our relationship with God is deeply, deeply flawed. I'd like to explain this to you using, I'm really glad that Aaron already brought up football because most of my analogies have to do with football. Are there any Detroit Lions fans in the room today? You can raise your hands. Okay, I bet there are a few more hands up than there would have been six months ago if I'd asked that question. It's been a pretty good season so far. Last week was a bit of a stumbling block, but I'm ready to make a bold prediction. A bold prediction, and don't worry, there's no such thing as jinxes. They don't They don't exist. I am predicting that the Lions are going to win the Super Bowl. It's going to happen. I am so convinced of this that I've written a letter to Lions fans that is set to go out after you all, and I'll count myself now as Lions fans, after we win the Super Bowl. I've based the letter on the text we just read, 
And so if you follow along the text, you'll, I think you'll see the connection. So here's the letter that I'm going to send out after the Lions win the Super Bowl. If then, or since then, you are Super Bowl champions, you need to act like champions. Set your mind on things that champions think about, not on things that losers think about. For your team has carried the day, and there is now a gigantic trophy in Ford Field. Don't be afraid to wear your Honolulu blue, but sport it with pride. Go ahead and buy those season tickets for next season, and don't let Packers fans talk trash about their recent dominance. In the, in the, in the division, that's old news. Don't go to bed early tonight, but celebrate the fact that your team has won. Don't be mean or rude to one another, but remember that you are all Super Bowl champions together. For here, there is neither Ford nor GM worker, North Villian or Down Riverite. Go blue or go green, but you are all champions together. All right, so obviously it's a bit of a joke, but I I hope you see the point here. In this letter, I put the indicative before the imperative. I told you what is true about you or what will be true about you in late January, that you all are Super Bowl champions, and I gave you some advice on how you are supposed to live and respond and act now that you are Super Bowl champions. But of course, you can't reverse the order. If a Bears fan, after you all, after the Lions win the Super Bowl, were to receive this letter, and he took it and he said to his, his fellow Bears fans, friends, and said, hey, I found the secret to how the Lions won the Super Bowl. They followed this pattern. They wore their team colors. They bought season tickets. They, they were united together. And these Bears fans began to follow that same pattern, thinking that it would cause them to win the Super Bowl. Of course, that wouldn't work. The, following the advice in this letter is not going to cause your team to win. It only, the logic only flows in one direction. And as ridiculous as it might look for a fan to, to thinking that he will cause his team to win by behaving a certain way, we look equally ridiculous before God when we believe that following his commandments will cause him to accept us and love us and will cause us to be able to get into heaven by our own effort. If I had to summarize the misunderstanding that Paul is correcting here, I will summarize it this way. We often believe that what we do on earth can affect our status in heaven. But in reality, our status in heaven can, should, and must affect how we live our lives on earth. Let me read it one more time. We often believe that what we do on earth can affect our status in heaven. We often believe that the way we perform or how well we live our lives or patterns we follow or rituals we accomplish can somehow affect whether or not we are accepted by God or we are going to be in heaven when we die. But in reality, our status has already accepted beloved children of God through Jesus Christ can, should, and must affect how we live our lives here on earth. This Sunday, as has been mentioned, we are celebrating Reformation Sunday, the the Sunday where, where Martin Luther nailed his 95 theses. The church in Luther's time had slowly, over the centuries, been falling into this very misunderstanding and wrong thinking for many years. By the time Luther nailed his theses up, the church was unambiguously teaching that the secret to securing good standing before God was by following certain practices and patterns in this life. 
For instance, baptism had been transformed from a sign and seal of the covenant, a way that we can see and to some extent experience physically what Christ has done for us spiritually by covering us with his blood and dying for us on the cross. It had become in the church in that day the way by which you actually became saved, by the way you actually were justified, as if following this ritual on earth could affect who we were in heaven. And many more practices were added in which people could do things on earth to manipulate and control their status before God. Things like a ritual confession before priests, pilgrimages, and, and, and looking at holy relics. And it had reached a head in which the church had actually began to put a price tag, an amount of money you could pay to affect your status in heaven. It was called buying an indulgence. And the church had begun to teach that if you paid a certain amount of money, you could either affect your eternal destiny in heaven, or your loved ones who'd already passed away, their eternal destiny. Do you see what they did? They had flipped the indicative and the imperative. They had begun to believe that what we do here on earth determines who we are in Christ. And they began to fall into the same error that Paul is correcting here. They believe that what we do on this earth can affect our status in heaven. They were like football fans desperately trying to act like Super Bowl champions thinking that they could cause their team to win. So if that was the error, what is the truth? The truth is that if you have accepted Christ, you are now, you now have an identity in heaven that is incredibly glorious. And that identity can, should, and must transform who we are and how we live and how we are able to obey the commandments that God has given us. And so very briefly, let me share three things that Paul tells us uh, is true about us in heaven that can affect how we live our life. The first is that you have been raised with Christ. The second is your life is hidden in Christ. And the third is you will appear with Christ in glory. So first, you have been raised with Christ. The tenses in this passage are somewhat confusing. For instance, there is some, some past tense in this passage that we would probably have expected to be future tense. Look at verse 3. It says, you have died. Verse 1 says, you have been raised. What would we expect this to say? I think we'd expect it to say, uh, if you are a follower of Jesus, one day in the future you will die, and then because you are in Christ, you will be raised up to heaven. But it doesn't say that. It says you have died, past tense, and you will be raised, future tense. But notice that it says you have been raised with Christ. If you are a follower of Jesus, one of the things the scripture teaches us is that everything that is true of Christ becomes true of you. Christ died on the cross, and he was raised, and so therefore the same thing can be said of you. You are associated with Christ so closely that his death is your death, and his resurrection is your resurrection. This is a wonderful doctrine called union with Christ, and it means that there is a very real sense in which the gospel is vicarious. We get credit for something someone else did. Tim Keller summarized this beautifully when he said, this doctrine means that the essence of being a Christian is not serving Christ or loving Christ. It is being in Christ. Why is this such good news? Why should this truth 
that Christ's death counted as your death and his resurrection counts as your resurrection? Why should that cause us to breathe a deep sigh of relief? Well, because the scriptures teach us that we have to die, that we are all sinful, that we have all committed, in a sense, cosmic treason, that we have disobeyed the God, the creator of the universe, and the consequence of that is death, both physically and spiritually. And justice won't be satisfied. God won't be satisfied until you and I die for our sins, physically and spiritually. But what this passage is teaching us is that we can check that box and say, done, complete. We are so closely associated with Jesus as Christians that his death counts as our death Our sins are as paid for as if we had died on the cross instead of Christ. And so now we don't have to die spiritually because Christ died in our place. How should this motivate us to live out the commandments of verses 5 through 11 or the commandments in the the, uh, Ten Commandments or any commandments in Scripture? How can this reality help us, this heavenly reality, help us to live good lives here on earth? Well, have you ever been so, so grateful to someone for something they did for you that it becomes your joy, not your obligation, to serve them, to to help them, to do what they want, to please them? Well, I believe that is the secret here, that we become so grateful for what Christ has accomplished for us, that we are able to, out out of gratitude, not obligation, live the lives that God commands us to live. So first, you have been raised with Christ. The second heavenly reality is that your life is now hid with Christ. Look at verse 3. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. We're continuing here with this theme of union with Christ, or the vicarious nature of the gospel. Jesus is in heaven with Christ right now. We learn that, or with the Father. Jesus is in heaven with the Father. So therefore, where are you? There's a very real sense that if Jesus is in heaven with the Father, so are you, because you are in him and with him. But the problem is, my life does not feel like I am in heaven right now. This passage tells me that my life is hidden with Christ in heaven, but that's not my experience of life. I doubt it's your experience. I don't feel like I'm in heaven. Many of us in this room may be battling with anxiety or depression, or, or battling deeply embedded sin in our life. We may be experiencing the pain of broken relationships with friends and loved ones, or maybe we're experiencing the literal pain of chronic pain or illness. Whatever it is, I don't know about you, but my experience of life does not feel like heaven, or at least I hope this is not as good as heaven eventually gets. So what's going on here? How can Paul say that we are currently seated with heaven, in heaven with Christ, but yet our lives don't reflect that truth? Well, though it is true that we have been raised with Christ in some mysterious yet real way, the implications and experience of that truth has yet to be fully revealed. It is hidden. Our life is hidden with Christ in heaven. It's not been fully made Known. I had a student when I was doing college ministry named Hunter who was the epitome of the poor college student. He was an introvert, but yet he lived with like 12 other guys that he could make ends meet and pay rent. He literally ate ramen noodles for almost every meal. He had no money. And I met with him weekly, and we read the Bible together, and he was, we had a great relationship. But near the end of my time working with him, I learned something about Hunter that surprised me. 
It turns out that Hunter was actually quite wealthy. Sadly, his grandfather had passed away shortly before he went to college, and he had inherited quite a large sum of money, right? But yet, that inheritance had an early withdrawal restriction on it. He was not able to actually touch the money until he turned 24. And so there was a very real sense in which the money was his. He was wealthy. He could log on to the website, see the balance. It was in his name. It didn't belong to anyone else. It belonged to him. But he couldn't enjoy the benefits of that wealth until a later date when he uh, turned 24. And the same is true for us. We are, spiritually speaking, fabulously wealthy. We are seated with Christ in heaven. And yet, there is a sense in which we will not fully be able to experience the benefits of that until we leave this life. It's the already, but the not yet. It's this thing in Scripture where we see that we have already received these blessings from Christ if we're Christians, but we have not yet fully come into possession of them. How can this reality that we are seated with Christ in heaven, even now before we fully experience it, how can it help us to live lives that follow God's commandments in this life? Well, my friend Hunter, he never really acted like someone who didn't have any money. Now, sure, he ate ramen and lived with too many guys, but I had other students who didn't have much money who were constantly stressed, constantly stressed because they had student loans that were accruing. They had to worry about whether or not they were going to get a great job after they graduated. And they were constantly living and acting like they didn't have any money, which was true. But Hunter, though he had the same amount of money to spend on a daily basis, never seemed stressed about finances, was never worried, because he knew there was no permanence to his poverty. He knew a day was coming in which he would receive this money, and he he would come into full possession of it. And so even though he didn't have the money yet and the way he could spend it, it was still able to affect how he lived his life today. The same is true. Knowing what is coming can have a significant impact on how we live our lives today. We don't have to live in spiritual poverty. Finally, the final truth that Paul mentions here is that you, this heavenly truth, you will one day appear with Christ in glory. Verse 4 says, When Christ, who is your life, appears, you also appear will appear with him in glory. What is glory? What is glory? We have not seen it in its fullness, but I think we see glimpses of it in this life. I remember when my first daughter was born and I held her in my hands and this incredible truth that this human being, this eternal soul who would exist for all eternity, now existed but didn't exist a year ago, and had come into being. God had created the soul, and somehow she was half me and half my wife, the person I love more than anyone else in the world. It was, it was a glimpse of, of glory. To a much lesser extent, um, I, I feel like I experienced glory at my first Lions football game, a much lesser extent, right? I, the team won, and everyone was cheering and going crazy and celebrating, and it was It was glorious. It was this tiny glimpse of glory. Well, one day, Christ is going to return. I don't know when it will be or what exactly it will be like, but it will be the most glorious day in the history of the universe. And this passage tells you, you will be there. You will be there. And because you have been united with Christ, you won't merely be there as a participant or an observer. You will be there sharing in Christ's glory with him. 
There's a theological dictionary that defines God's glory as beauty, power, or honor. A quality of God that emphasizes his greatness and authority as well as his moral beauty and perfection. And you will share in those things in some mysterious ways. The fans at the Lions game I were at, and I'll count myself among the fans, we didn't do anything to win that game. We just paid too much money for tickets and sat in traffic for too long, right? We didn't do anything, and yet we shared in our team's glory. There were fans high-fiving, hugging. People were crying. They were excited that their team had finally won the day, but they hadn't done anything. And that is a little tiny picture of what it looks like to share in the glory of someone else as we share in Christ's glory. But it's much better than that. We have been united with Christ as if we were Christ himself in some mysterious sense. It would be more like if on the day of glory we get to go down to the football field and get get lifted up as if we were Rudy, right? As if we had done something worth celebrating. Or even more, if I'd gone home after the Lions game and found Jared Goff's uh, paycheck in my mailbox, right? That is what it looks like to share in Christ's glory. In some mysterious way, Christ's beauty, his power, his, his moral perfection is something that God is saying, now belongs to, to you. And you will be treated for all eternity as if you were that glorious. It almost sounds blasphemous to say, but it is the consistent teaching of, of the Scriptures that if you are in Christ, your future is glorious. How can this help us live out, this glorious truth, live out our, the commandments of God today? Well, I'm convinced that most of us spend nearly all of our time and energy every single week seeking glory. Now, we, we're seeking proof that we are valuable, significant, worthy of love, worthy of the air we breathe. I think it motivates almost every decision we make, and we seek it through different things. We seek it through money, power, position, popularity, family approval, physique, or we spend all of our time and energy medicating ourselves to cover the pain of not feeling glorious. Well, you know what this passage teaches us? If you are in Christ, you don't have to do this. If you are in Christ, your destiny is glory, more glory than you could ever imagine. Not glory that you earned, but glory that Christ earned on your behalf. Not from anything you will do or accomplish. So you can rest, and you can turn to these lists of commandments And realize how much freer and more able you would be to pursue them if you gave up the tyranny of dedicating your life to pursue your own glory. Let me pray for us. Father God, thank you that you sent your son to die for us. Thank you that you are glorious and that you chose to share your glory with us. Lord, thank you that you always put the indicative before the imperative. You always tell us who we are in Christ before you command us how to live. We thank you for that, Lord. Help us now to believe what you say is true of us and live lives that are appropriate to respond to that. And then we pray. Amen. This has been a podcast of First Presbyterian Church in Trenton, Michigan. For more information, please visit us online at fpchurch.com.